Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all today. And once again, a thank you to our music team uh, this morning that has led us so well in words of truth that have pointed us to the realities we'll be discussing in our text this morning. As we continue our study through 1 Timothy, we find ourselves kind of at an interesting uh, interlude in Paul's instruction to Timothy. As he's reached chapter 3, he's launched into this discussion of church leadership. And in in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, he's been looking specifically at the church leader's godly character. What, what a church leader must be in terms of godly character. And then in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 through verse 16, he's going to continue discussing a church leader's godly discipline, what it looks like for church leaders to be men who have disciplined themselves for the purpose of godliness. And right in between those two teachings on church leadership, he has sort of just sandwiched in here this reminder of what all of this is about, of why it is so important to pay attention to all this teaching. In fact, one, of, one commentary I read, I was using an illustration about somebody named Vince Lombardi and something about a here is a football speech, but I couldn't figure out a way to work that in contextually today, so we'll just skip that. But it is one of those passages that comes back to what is the heart of what we do? And why is it so important that all this teaching, all this instruction is known and followed in the life of the church? And so if you have your copy of God's word, I want to read this together as we look this morning at the role of the church in defending truth in preparation to look next week at the kinds of people who are attacking the truth sandwiched in the middle of this discussion on church leadership. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. I would invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We do, in fact, believe all of Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, with the result that we would be adequate and equipped for every good work. And so we hear this morning the words of God in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we live in a land where the knee is bowed to so many idols, and yet we come this morning because we will bow to none but you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for your spirit who makes us alive in him by faith so that we might be those who can create this common confession with a unified voice, even as we've done in song. I pray that you would encourage our hearts with your revealed truth and how that is meant to work its way out in love in our lives, so that this day and every day, we might see not only the fruit that you're bearing in us, but through us, what you are putting on display for the betterment and the encouragement of others and for the testimony of the world. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, as I said, we come to kind of a a unique passage. It's viewed in many ways as sort of a hinge going from the instruction that Paul's given in the first half of the letter to the instruction he's going to give in the remaining part of the letter. And it is a going back to home plate and saying, Timothy, this is why it matters so much. This is why it's so important. And in the course of these short verses, 14 to 16, he's going to call us to three different things that as those who are part of the people of God, as those who are part of the church of God, these need to characterize our lives. And the first we can see there in verses 14, the first part of verse 15, as the church, we live the truth. That's what we do. We live the truth. Look with me at verse 14. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And he begins with kind of this personal message about his intended travel plans, and it reminds us of where we're at in the life of Paul. This letter was most likely written in between two imprisonments in Rome that happened at the very end, not only of Paul's missionary journeys, but at the end of his life. As you recall, after his third missionary journey, he had gone to Jerusalem. There it had kicked up a ruckus. He'd been arrested. And through a wild series of adventures, he had ended up back in Rome as a prisoner. There in house arrest, he wrote the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And sent them out to those various cities and people. Paul then was released for a period of time during which he seemed to have some freedom to travel, and it looks like he headed north, north to the region of Macedonia. We'll put a map up on the screen. You can see where that is. Paul told us that was his travel plans in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, when he wrote, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. We're looking here at this map. Israel would be sort of down here off the right edge of the uh, blueprint. What you're seeing is Greece and the west part of Turkey. Italy is just to the left. And so Paul has, has headed up. He's in the region of Macedonia. He's writing to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, I am hoping for the opportunity to come and visit you there on the west coast of Turkey. But he's hinting it may not work out. In case I am delayed, if something comes up where I'm unable to come. And perhaps what he was thinking of is the conflict that would end up being expressed in the letter he writes right after 1 Timothy, which is the letter to Titus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 12, he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus or Tychicus, or if you want to really be authentic, Tuchichas. I'd like to think he went by Tuki. And so if you want to just say that whenever you come to his name, you can go for it. When I send these men to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And so between the letter of First Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy and Titus, Paul has made the decision. He's probably not going to be able to make the journey to Ephesus. Instead, he's going to go the other direction and be wintering in Nicopolis. Not long after that, he will be taken prisoner again, returned to Rome, and in that second imprisonment, he will write the letter of 2 Timothy, his farewell to his dear son in the faith, knowing that his death is imminent. And so as we come to this book, as we come even to this passage, we're reminded 
Paul is in the sunset years of his ministry. He sees the door of freedom closing. He understands that his, his options are perhaps limited. Did he get a chance to go visit Spain to, to see, see his dream that he expressed in, Rome, or in Romans fulfilled? We don't know, but he seems to be aware that it is the time to sit down and focus on how do I give instruction to young pastors that I have left behind so that they will know not just how to solve temporary issues in their church, but they will know how to lay a foundation that can be generationally passed on for all churches everywhere. And there's some of that sobriety behind the, t- the teaching of Paul in these final letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I want us to kind of keep that in mind as we go through this letter, when we look through this book. Paul, as Hebrews would say, is part of that generation that is laying the foundation of the faith on top of the cornerstone, which is Christ, and all the generations of the church will be built upon that instruction and that example. That foundation, as we've been looking at, includes a high view of the qualifications of church leadership. That is something that we must know and we must, that we must hold to if we want our churches to be healthy. But even that topic of church leadership is itself built on even more fundamental convictions. And that is what he turns to this morning. And so if you want to look at just even this first verse and a half, I think we see three lessons about what matters most to the church. And the first is this, that the Christian life flows from knowledge. The Christian life flows from knowledge. Paul writes saying, hey, I'm hoping to come to you in person, but in case I'm not able to, I wanted to literally spell this out for you so that you will know. And that word know means to have a true knowledge of something, to understand the facts about a thing. And the the verb there, to know it, carries the force of something that may have happened in the past, but but it has an ongoing effect in the present. It continues to be important in the present. In other words, some of you have probably taken a class maybe in high school, maybe in college that you had to take so that you could get a degree or get your diploma or whatever. And besides maybe remembering the title of the class, it's gone. You don't remember anything. You did it. You've got the transcript to show it. You've got the diploma. But as far as something that you have used in your life, that you've retained, that's helped shape your thinking in your life, it's just gone. That's not what Paul's writing to Timothy here, saying, hey, here's the church leadership class. Make sure the guys go through it so they can check the box. You can say that you've got a good church and move on. He's saying, no, these are things that you need to know and use and live out that need to have an impact on our lives day after day. And that is part of the essence of what it means to be a Christian, is that we know certain things that God has revealed to us. Paul doesn't write to Timothy and say, hey, I'm so glad you're just such a a man of zeal. I'm glad you have so much passion. I'm glad you just want to be a good pastor. I just want to encourage you, trust your gut. Go with your instincts. Uh, Figure out your people and and what you think they need and just, you know, follow that, that impulse. He says, no, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you. I'm using letters and words because it's really important you don't misunderstand this information essential to being able to live the Christian life, to being able to honor and serve God as he has called us to do. You need to know. The church is built on knowledge. That knowledge must lead to 
passion, affection, love for Christ. It must engage the whole person. But remember that Paul himself is a man from a people group that he described this way. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And that was the difference between recognizing the Messiah and ruinously missing it. That truth that we are to know allows then for us to have this common understanding upon which a shared understanding of the clear expectations of God can be built. And so second we see here, not only does the Christian life flow from knowledge that we have been given, but that knowledge then establishes clear expectations for our lives. Paul says, I want you to know how one ought to conduct himself. And that phrase, how one ought, can also be translated, it is necessary, how it is necessary. This isn't implying an optional set of suggestions. Paul's not saying, here's a few good ideas that might help out. This knowledge that Paul is imparting to Timothy, along with the rest of God's revealed word, gives to us the necessary commands and principles by which we must live. And it's a sad reality that the church throughout all of its ages has too often been famous for its departures from the conduct God has outlined in Scripture. And that departure can go in two different directions. As we'll see next week, one direction that can go is to take the commands of God, take the grace of God through Jesus Christ, and set them aside and substitute instead this flimsy artifice of man's rules, man's legalistic standards, some other means by which we are to measure whether we are acceptable to God. On the other hand, the church can have such a shallow understanding of grace that we don't understand the ways in which that is meant to shape our lives and lead to an outflow of obedience in a grateful and loving response. And so we end up using the grace of God as an excuse to justify lawlessness and rebellious living. The church is so easily distracted the instant it departs from what it knows in the word of God. That alone will keep us on track with the expectations God has for how we must conduct ourselves in the household of God. And that word conduct, if you look at it throughout your New Testament, you'll actually often see it translated as return. It's a word that literally comes from the root that means to turn around. If you, if you see how it's, it's used throughout the New Testament, it's often in situations where you have repetitive, rhythmic action, things that happen over and over. This is to be the normal rhythm of our Christian lives. How is a person supposed to continuously go about their Christian life? It is to be a, an ongoing process of conforming to truth. And think about how unambiguous just this book has been on those, on those topics. We've already studied in 1 Timothy alone how to avoid myths and endless genealogies and speculation, how to love one another from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, the charge to pray for all men, especially those in authority, so that we can live a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity, exhortations to the men in the church to humbly pray, lifting up holy hands to remove from their hearts wrath and dissension, Instruction to the women on how they should adorn themselves with good works and discretion and not showy displays of wealth and status and how they should receive the teaching in the church from qualified men who preach the word and that those qualified men are qualified not under their own standards but under the standards that God's word has revealed. Whether that is to the office of elder 
or whether it is to the office of deacon. These are specific, unchanging, universally applicable expectations for life in the body of Christ. And it's one of the beautiful things about Scripture that it is still so immediately and specifically applicable today. Think about what it would have been like in the flesh in the first century to sit down and say, I'm going to try to write a book of specific expectations for a group of people who are gathering that needs to work in every possible future cultural context around the globe that could possibly arise. Like that would be an impossible undertaking. And how, how amazing is it that God has managed to give to us both a set of clear, specific expectations that are simultaneously, universally applicable wherever God's people have been found. Those who are in Christ have this shared set of expectations from God's word about how we are to conduct ourselves as those who are in him. And the idea of being in him not only comes with the wonderful truth that we are united individually now with a heavenly father, but also that we are now united collectively with one another as a heavenly family. And so we see third here, those expectations that flow from the knowledge that is to shape our lives, those expectations govern the household of God. I think one of the more awkward habits of church people, for those who are just coming and visiting for the first time, or maybe coming in from the world and, and just seeing what this Christian thing is all about, is, is how persistent we are at calling everybody brother and sister. Have any of you ever gone through that phase in life where you were like, these people are kind of weird. What's up with all the brothers, sisters stuff? A few of you. I think it, it can be a little strange to hear such an emphasis on that language. What are, why do we do that? What's up with that? Is this like perhaps you grew up in a family where there was Uncle Harvey and there was Aunt Sue and they were over all the time and you loved them and you grew up and then one day you realized you weren't related to them at all? Right? Uncle Harvey was like dad's best friend from college or something. Aunt Sue was maybe a mom's good friend from, from, uh, from work or something. And, and you're like, I've been lied to my entire life. There's no blood connection here whatsoever. I'm not raining on your parade if you have familial honorifics. But is that what we're doing? Are we trying to kind of manufacture an atmosphere of pretend connection with all of this warm, fuzzy brother-sister language? Is it kind of cultish? The answer is no. We're not trying to create an artificial, an artificial substitute. We are trying to remind ourselves, as the church has from its very foundation, of a reality that is truer and more lasting than even the bonds of earthly blood relation. The reality that we read about, for example, in John chapter 1, verse 12, when John writes, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that would lead John later to write in 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. 
This is who we are. We were the world. That was how our hearts worked. That was what our lives looked like. And because of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, we have experienced such a transformation that we are now alien to that very world that we are from. And our identity is now in Christ, a child of God. We are family. Regardless of how we act, this is simply a fact of the matter. I have four children, some natural born, some adopted, all of which irrevocably, unchangeably, not ever up for a vote or discussion, completely my children, just like God's family. But it is really encouraging as a parent when they act like they're a Martin, when it's important to them to conduct themselves in a way that reflects well on the family name, whether that's as a Martin or more importantly, as a child of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. You are the household of God. You're not trying to earn that status. You're not trying to earn that right. That, who, that is who you are in Christ. This is what that family ought to look like. If, as Romans 8 says, the Spirit himself is testifying with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if that is the reality of who we are, then as Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. For the household of God, for the people of God, this is now our calling. As an outflow of our identity in him, we desire, according to God's revealed truth, to conform ourselves to who he has said he is and what he has commanded us to be by following after the example of his son, Jesus Christ, that he set for us when he came and sacrificed himself on our behalf. That is the expectation of what it means to conduct ourselves in the household of God, to follow his, his commandments in this, excuse me, to follow his commandments in this matter is not meant to be burdensome. The Bible isn't a big corporate policy manual. It is the expectations of a good father that he has established for those who by grace have been brought into his family so that we may live in fellowship with him and with one another in love. The heart of the church then, of a healthy church, is demonstrated in biblically confident, holy conduct of God's covenant community. If you see a holy church, you will find people who are biblically confident because they know what God has said and therefore live lives of holy conduct, joyfully conforming themselves to the expectations that God has established by his grace and through his spirit, living out the identity of being a part of God's covenant people, the family he has covenanted himself to in Christ. And it is so essential that the church be vigilant in this because as Paul is now going to go on and say, the church has a unique role that no other institution on the planet can properly fulfill. And if we are not a people of truth, and a people whose lives are conformed to the truth, we will not be able to do what he calls us to do in the second half of verse 15, and that is to guard the truth. We are to live the truth out in our lives, to know it, to live it, and we are also to guard it. Look with me at the second half of verse 15. 
where Paul now describes the household of God as the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We are reminded right off the bat here that our church is not our church. It is the living God's church. This word church, you've probably heard a lot of messages on it. It comes from root words that mean the called out ones. And it was a word used essentially of any assembly of people, civil government, social clubs, any group of people that would come out from among the large group of people and assemble themselves for a specific reason. It could refer to people coming into the synagogue on Sundays, or like I said, it could refer to like a board meeting in a city government. It was simply an assembly of people. And we must ask ourselves, what makes this assembly here, this morning, in this place, what makes this gathering of believers at Valley Bible Church a special assembly? Is it us? Is this a special assembly because we're pretty special? Because you and I bring so much to the table that our shared gifts, our shared passion, our shared intellect, our shared abilities are impressive? I sure hope that's not what makes this special. Not in the church about which the Bible says there are not many mighty, not many noble. It's not us. We are just an assembly unless we are the church of the living God. That's what makes this assembly special. The fact that it is conducted in his name and it is his possession. That's what makes not only Valley Bible Church, but every local gathering of the church universal around the world and across time special is that we are part of the gathering of the living God. And that phrase, the living God, is a favorite description of God you'll find throughout the Old and New Testaments. We don't serve a dead idea. We serve the living one. And the Bible is pretty cheeky about that sometimes. One of my favorite chapters, if you want some humor this afternoon, read Isaiah 44, describing a man who goes out and he plants a tree. And then he takes care of the tree and the tree grows. And when it gets big enough, he cuts the tree down and he drags it home and he whacks off a section, chops it into some firewood. I'm kind of cold, throws it in the fire to, to warm himself. I'm hungry. So he whacks off another section, puts it in the oven, bakes some bread. And then he takes the rest and he carves it into a figure of something, uh, tries to make it stable so it won't totter, puts it on a shelf. And then he says, oh God, save me. And the chapter just makes a mockery off of the dead gods of human imagination. We don't serve the ox god, the river god, the snake god, the tree god, the air god. We don't serve anything that we can look around in this created realm and say, that's what will save us, that's what will save us. We serve the ancient of days, the living God, the one who was and who is and who is to come. Remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they threw out some ideas. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter had his shining moment. Right, usually when Peter's talking in the New Testament, we're shaking our heads. But this is the one where we're nodding. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus answer him? Finally, you got one right. <laughs> Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father 
who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Today, when we say the word church, a lot of things probably pop into our minds. We think of buildings and steeples and crosses, and we think of pews or chairs. We think of programs and Sunday school and VBS, and we think of all the different trappings that go around church life. But as Jesus, Jesus is talking to his disciples, they have an understanding of what, of what church, of what gathering meant in the Jewish community, of going to the synagogue, of what gatherings in the, in the city would be among other groups. And Jesus is saying, hey, my gathering, my assembling is going to be built on this, on this truth that you just declared. And they would have not been able to imagine all the things perhaps that church means to us today. All they knew was this. When Jesus gathers his people, it is on this fact He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that fact and that alone distinguishes every genuine church of God in the world, whether or not they gather to worship the son of God, Jesus Christ. This is who we are. And this is what we hold forth to the world. If it is true that our church is not our church, it is the living God's church, then Paul is now going to transition and say, here is what I have called this church to do in the world. There's a lot of answers you could give to the question, what is the church supposed to do in the world? Uh, The church is to be the place where God's word is taught and we feast upon it. The church is the place where we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The church is the place where we exercise the one another as we pray for one another and, and we encourage one another and we bear one another's burdens. The church is where we use our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body and love. There's so many things that we do as a church that are rightly described as purposes of the church. But this is what Paul chooses. Timothy, he says, guard the truth. An undying God calls us to hold up his undying truth. If we are the church of the living God, then we must proclaim his living truth. Or in Paul's words, we are to be the pillar and support of the truth. Pillars and the supporting stones underneath them that kept them stable were symbolic in the ancient world. Uh, as we had the chance, my wife and I, to travel through uh, Turkey and parts of Greece, retracing the footsteps of Paul about a year ago, we would cross a lot of these fields on the way to little mounds of ruins. And we asked a tour guide once, like, why don't we stop and look at some of the residential areas? Why are we just going to look at the palaces and things like that? And he like, said, well, you're driving over the residential area right now. Because the residential area was made either of simple limestone bricks as you get closer to the Holy Land. Every time those houses fell over, as they often did, you would just cart the bricks off and use them to build other buildings. So there's a lot of walls and cisterns that are still using thousands of year old recycled stones. Or the other major building material was a mud brick. And if you had an earthquake, mud brick just turned into mud. And it was gone. And so the residential zones are largely just broken pottery and dirt until you hit a pillar. And once you find a pillar, you know you found something that was built to last. Something where foundation stones would have been laid and massive work into these monumental stone structures designed to hold things up that would represent what was important to the people, their identity, their power, their significance, meant to be an enduring testimony. And when Paul writes this letter to the church there in Ephesus, 
If you mention pillar, there was one building above all others that came into their minds. Here's a picture of a, of a model recreation of it there in the museum in Ephesus. It was the mighty temple of Artemis or Diana. You may recall in the New Testament when Paul was in Ephesus and there was a huge riot. And for two hours in the theater, they were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. 127 massive pillars donated by the kings of the surrounding lands. And today we see monuments all bleached white. But you have to imagine it in its glory as these pillars would have come brightly painted in the most vibrant hues they had, overlaid with gold, in many cases encrusted with precious jewels and gems. It would have been a blindingly glorious display of power and stability and endurance that anybody in the city could see from anywhere in the city. Paul is telling Timothy, the church is not guarding the truth like a crypt, trying to keep it safe from prying eyes. The church is holding it forth where everybody can see, but making sure that no harm befalls it, keeping it pristine. And that is why in Paul's last letter to Timothy, as he knows his end is coming, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. What kind of people would do that? Well, he told Timothy a chapter earlier when he said that in these difficult last days, men will be lovers of self and lovers of money. They will be boastful, arrogant. They will be revilers, disobedient to parents ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then he tells Timothy, avoid men like this. And here's the irony. Paul says, watch out. You're going to deal with these kind of people coming in from the world, that their hearts are not underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're given to all of these human appetites and desires. Stay away from them, but know this, a whole bunch of them are going to end up in pulpits. A whole bunch of them are going to end up pastoring churches because they're going to find people not just in a small circle, but they're going to find people in whole churches that say, would you tickle our ears for us, please? Please don't take us to that book. Please don't take us to where we will have our hearts exposed, where the sharp dual-edged sword of the Spirit will do its work of conviction in my life. Would you please just tickle my ears? And I am so thankful that for now, almost a full generation, Valley Bible Church has abided none of such nonsense that you have faithfully come even to talk to me and other pastors and said, hey, is this what you said on Sunday? Does that, really, does that really square with scripture? Is that really what this passage means? Help me know if this is really true, that you are passionate to hold your church leadership accountable to be faithful to the word of God, that you said, show us the book. And brothers and sisters, don't stop. 
Do not stop. Do not entrust the future of this church to any man who would stand before you. Be a student of the scriptures. Know what God has said. Be passionate that when you come to worship God, it is according to truth, and that those who would stand and proclaim before you will do so according to truth as well. Therein only is the safety of the future of this church when God's people will listen to God's voice alone. Jesus, when he prayed to his father in John 17, asked the father to sanctify his followers in the truth. Set them apart, Lord, he says. Bring them out of this world. Make them different. Make them holy. And he said how that will look. He said, your word is truth. We are only a set apart people for God to the extent to which we cling to God's word. And the degree to which we depart from God's word is the degree to which inevitably we will become indistinguishable from the world. On the back of your bulletin each week, on our church website, you've probably seen our church mission statement built around this conviction. As we proclaim biblical truth, we cultivate relationships that are intimate with Christ, active in the church, loving the community, and the order there is important. We don't worship the book. We worship the God who can only be rightly known, rightly worshipped, rightly followed when we know what he has told us about himself in his word. And so we proclaim that word throughout our church, one to another, and based upon the truth of that, we then can invest in all the relationships that God has called us to, beginning with our relationship with Christ that must be according to truth, and then moving to how we encourage and love one another in the body of Christ that must be according to truth, and then reaching out to our community and to the ends of the earth, and that too must be according to truth. If, if this is new to you, if you've, if you've never sat down and, and had a plan to read your Bible and soak your mind in God's word, today's a good day to start. Make one. If, if you've only read God's word as an experience to encourage you and never studied it to say, what does it mean? We've got some women's Bible studies kicking off. We've got adult Sunday school classes. We've got some men's studies. They can give you some tools. Say, I want to learn how to mine the word of God for all that it means for my own soul. If you're not hiding God's word in your heart through memorization, start small. Pick something of God's word that will minister, encourage, and instruct you in what you're dealing with in life and say, I want that to tumble through my mind and commit it to your heart. Oh, church, are we ready to stand tall like a pillar and hold forth the truth and to do that generation after generation? There are so many glorious truths that God has revealed to us that we have the privilege to do this with. But Paul ends our passage with one truth that undergirds them all. And that truth is the good news of a Savior that is working its way by the grace of God, by means of the church, into every nation, tribe, and tongue on earth. And so Paul ends this passage with that well-known confession we spent all of Advent looking at, our third point this morning, and we close with this as we come into our time around the Lord's table. Not only are we the people who are called to live the truth and guard the truth, we confess the truth, we proclaim it. In verse 16, we see these familiar words. Many of you probably still have them memorized from our time in Advent. And I would like to invite us once again to read them together 
as a common confession from one voice that is united. And so if you have your Bibles there, it's also up on the screen, 1 Timothy 3.16. Would you read with me verse 16? By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is our common confession. There are a number of them throughout the New Testament. Some, like Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, focus on the death and burial of Christ. Christ, talk, speaking of how Christ was crucified, according to the scriptures. He was buried, rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. When you look at this confession, you'll notice it doesn't mention death, doesn't mention burial, doesn't mention cross. The focus of this confession is not a focus primarily on how the gospel happened, but on the fact that the gospel triumphs. And so it comes in these three stanzas. The first stanza focusing on the fact that God sent a savior as witnessed by heaven and earth. And the second on the fact that the work of that savior is being proclaimed around the world as witnessed by heaven and earth. And the final stanza, stanza focusing on the fact that it is having its intended effect of bringing those who hear to faith in Jesus Christ so that we will one day have the same future that Christ did when he was taken up into glory. It is the confession of a church triumphant, of a family that knows how the story ends. And so this morning, as the elements are passed and we sing this song, sing it as a declaration of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and all we have to look forward to in him. And then afterwards, we will partake together.